I'm going to, uh, to share yet, yet another episode uh, of uh, We Live in Hell. Oh, wait, sorry. not the, That's not the podcast. Uh, the podcast is theculture.tv. <laughs> uh, it's good to be back with you. That's again, every yeah. podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. like, I've, uh, I've been... Uh, like I had to reduce my news consumption last week because I was just like, I was sick as a dog and, you know, I was just like getting up to do the call-in shows and then like drinking some hot liquids and crawling back into bed. And now that I've like, you know, resumed, um, the, uh, I've resumed the, the routine of like getting up in the morning, uh, you know, reading what's happening in the other uh, daily news and, uh, also reading the takes that have been coming out of our, uh, prestigious um, Western news publications. I got to say, I'm like, I'm at a loss as to how bad it's gotten. I was, I was actually saying last, or saying yesterday on the culture, that where we are in terms of discourse, it's like the years of iron in Italy. It's like that, except replace iron with stupidity, and it's just everybody <laughs> is being absolutely murdered by utter stupidity in discourse and punditry. So I saw um, a, an article or a, 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 an opinion column by Thomas L. Friedman with the New York Times. And the, uh, the article started off, or the, the first um, iteration of the article uh, claimed that we are right now witnessing the, fir- the first world war, like the first real world war. Did you see right. that? I saw that. I, I saw it a little too late, so they had already changed the headline. Yeah. So now it was called something like, let me pull it up. It says something like, oh, Putin didn't know we were all watching or something like along those lines. So they I actually, apparently Putin, they probably yeah. got a lot of heat. Vladimir Putin is not aware that the West has media. I, I don't know. I'm not sure where that was supposed to be going. Or that I, he's sitting around like refreshing his Twitter feed, waiting for like validation from fucking like all these yeah. blue yellow emojis yeah. you know like that's that's his goal that's his material reality yeah <sighs> so um <laughs> but thomas friedman thomas friedman is really scraping the bottom of the barrel even for liberals like i think even, even liberal, if i was a liberal i would still be even embarrassed for thomas by him. friedman this is one of the worst pieces of writing i've ever laid eyes on and that's not me <laughs> using hyperbole that's me like i cannot if I handed in something like that to, so uh, with the culture.tv, we're, we're going to be launching a Substack stack uh, in uh, a week and a half. And uh, the editor for the Substack is actually the very first editor that I ever had as a writer, like uh, as, as a journalist. Um, my friend Kelly mm-hmm. Kodaki is going to be helping us uh, with the Substack launch. And that includes um, editing articles. And so Kelly is, you know, getting me sort of like retrained in the habit of coming up with, you know, like uh, insightful analysis, like, you know, um, whatever I read, like read it with a critical eye and then think of like, you know, find a few things that are off, like strike you as off with what you've just read, do a little bit of research and turn it into analysis. And uh, so, I mean, this is what she would tell me way, way back when, uh, this is back in like 2014, I think was when I first uh, wrote, started writing articles professionally. And um, yeah, if I handed in to her what Friedman handed into his editor at the New York Times, it would have been rejected on its face. And so it got me thinking, and this is what we were talking about yesterday, is that, um, the, like, we Marxists use the phrase dialectical materialism, and I wonder if the audience 
is aware of how the process of dialectical thinking goes into how we consume news. Because I think a lot of the time, when you see Marxist-Leninists offering analysis and takes on everything from the war in Ukraine to U.S. domestic policy to Amazon's uh, the Amazon labor union, which uh, just succeeded, like the first labor union uh, in an Amazon warehouse, um, uh, succeeded last week in New York uh, on, in the Staten Island warehouse. You know, the way that we think about and approach these matters um, is done in a way that I think a lot of people on the West can't necessarily relate to. And sometimes we come across as being strange or fringe or uh, zealots in some way. And really what it comes down to is thinking about matters in such a way that you start with rational interests at heart and then carry that all the way through and don't accept any easy answers. And when I read this Friedman article, I'm like, this is actually probably, it's indicative of the way that Friedman thinks, the way that he writes and how he's built his career, but also how okay. Western media is able to continuously pull one over on people because nothing means anything. Right. I want to read the article. This It won't take long. I just want to read it for the for the audience. And I mean, yeah, maybe we can, can laugh can, at it. And can, yeah, can go ahead and read it. And, you know, I'll, okay. I'll set it up with a little bit of preamble. So for anybody who's not aware, uh, Thomas L. Friedman is a columnist for the New York Times, has been for a number of years. Um, he uh, began writing um, foreign ed or foreign affairs op-eds way back in 1995. Um, uh, in 1982, he was the uh, bureau chief for Beirut. In 84, he was the Jerusalem bureau chief. And then the diplomatic correspondent uh, for Washington in 1989. And uh, later on, the White House correspondent and economic correspondent. He's been with the New York Times since 1981. Um, his education is in Mediterranean studies from Brandeis University, graduated in 1975. And then in 78, he got a master's in modern Middle East studies at Oxford University. So, you know, he's not, he's not, in, he's not unintelligent. He's just got points of view and ways of thinking that I find impossible to decipher. So his, his article, uh, which now reads, Putin had no clue how many of us would be watching, goes something like this. Almost I'll six read. weeks. Oh, oh. oh, no, I was going to read it. it. Do you want to read it? or? Yeah, I can read it. You want me to read it? Okay. I got it. Oh, no, I was going to read it. <laughs> oh, okay. No, okay. fine. You, you go ahead. You, If you'd like to read it, you go ahead. You, you do the preamble. You do the commentary, and let me okay. read the, the text. All right. Yeah? Because right. right. I want to I, – I cannot I, – I need to read it out loud to even believe that it's it written at all. <laughs> all right. Go ahead. Uh, okay. It says, almost six weeks into the war between Russia and Ukraine, I'm beginning to wonder if this conflict isn't our first true world war, in italics, by the way, much more than World War One or World War Two ever was. In this war, which I think of as World War Wired, virtually everyone on the planet can either observe the fighting at a granular level, participate in some way, or be affected economically, no matter where they live. While the battle on the ground that triggered World War Wired is ostensibly over who should control Ukraine, do not be fooled. This has quickly turned into, quote, the big battle, end quote, between the two most dominant political systems in the world today, free market, rule of law democracy versus authoritarian kleptocracy. The Swedish expert on the Russian economy, Anders Usland, remarked to me. Anders Usland is on Twitter. I don't know if you remember or you know who he is, Q. Um, yeah, but he is basically, 
Yeah. Um, he is this one of, he's one of these, like, he's been making, like, the one of, he's one of the people who's been saying, going around saying, at least Hitler didn't do this, at least Hitler didn't do that. Like, he's literally making Holocaust uh, denialist, like, tweets. Okay. Um, and um, I also, what do you think of the name World War Wired? Yeah, that's what Thomas Friedman is calling this. Uh, war. I, I know. And on its face, You're low. Your voice is low again. Sorry. Oh. No, saying that on its face, the idea that um, the idea that uh, this war has to be classified as different than any other war based on people's access to the Internet is just it's preposterous. It's to say that the Arab Spring, uh, the 2014 Maidan, uh, the NATO bombing of Libya, and any number of conflicts since the war in Syria is to say that there was no uh, coordination, uh, videography, nothing that came out of the Internet that defined or at least heavily influenced any of these conflicts when we know that to be true. Like we know that all these conflicts were heavily influenced by um, both video that was coming out of uh, these areas that were recorded on smartphones um, and what people were uh, tweeting and posting on social media. So there's nothing necessarily different about this one than others yeah all right he goes on um though this war is far from over and vladimir putin may still find a way to prevail and come out stronger if he doesn't it could be a watershed in the conflict between democratic and undemocratic systems it is worth recalling that world war ii put an end to fascism and the cold war put an end to orthodox communism eventually even in china so what happens on the streets of kiev Mariupol and the Donbass region could influence political systems far beyond Ukraine and far into the future. So um, he again compares basically what he calls free market capitalism with authoritarian kleptocracy. And I find that very interesting. And I want to like compare what, you know, he's like, he thinks he, he he's even called, he even calls it capitalism later on. Right. Um, I'll continue. Indeed, other autocratic leaders like China's are watching Russia carefully. They see its economy being weakened by Western sanctions, thousands of its young technologists fleeing to escape a government denying them access to the Internet and credible news, and its inept army seemingly unable to gather, share, and funnel accurate information to the top. Those leaders have to be asking themselves, holy cow, am I that vulnerable? Vulnerable? Am I presiding over a similar house of cards? Everyone is watching. In World War One and World War II, no one had a smartphone or access to social networks through which to observe and participate in the war in non-kinetic ways. What the fuck does that mean? Um, indeed, a large chunk of the world's population was still colonized and did not have the full freedom to express independent views, even if they have the technology. Unlike here, where, you know, um, if you say anything that doesn't toe the line, you get, you get fucking banned or suspended or get a tag put on you or get shadow banned. Um, so that's fine. Uh, many of those residing in outside the war zones were also extremely poor subsistence farmers who were not so heavily affected by those first two world wars. There weren't the giant, connected, globalized, and urbanized lower and middle classes of today's wired world. Now, anyone with a smartphone can view what is happening in Ukraine, live and in color, and express opinions globally through social media. In our post-colonial world, which is a bullshit phrase, by the way, uh, governments from virtually every country around the globe can vote to condemn or excuse one side or another in Ukraine through the UN General Assembly. By the way, I just saw the speeches at, well, some of the speeches at the Security Council meeting that was just held. I don't know if you caught some of that, Q. No, I wasn't. Like, I've been busy all morning. I have 
Okay. Yeah, no, it was interesting. I actually caught um, when, uh, was it, who was it, who was it, France, Russia, China, India, Norway, Ghana, and UAE. Uh, and then I had to log out. Come on, the stream. So, um, but, like, you know, anyway, it was, uh, you know, it's the UN. Like, it's mostly just posturing. But it was interesting, like, France, the France, the French lady was, like, really going in there, like, oh, we condemn with the whole high, highest uh, thing, all the war crimes committed by Russia. She did, she like made it a point to say war crimes committed by Russia, like, first of all, assuming that there's no war crimes committed by Ukraine, and then basically saying that she doesn't, they don't condemn that. Um, anyway, um, China's and India's speeches were really interesting, actually. Okay, I'll continue. While estimates vary, it appears that between 3 billion and 4 billion people on the planet, almost half, have a smartphone today, and although internet censorship remains a real problem, particularly in China, there are just so many more people able to peer deeply into so many more places, and that's not all. Anyone with a smartphone and a credit card can aid strangers in Ukraine through Airbnb by just reserving a night at their home and not using it. Teenagers anywhere can create apps on Twitter to track Russian oligarchs and their yachts, and the encrypted instant messaging app Telegram, which was invented by two Russian-born techie brothers, as a tool to communicate outside the Kremlin's earshot, has emerged as the go-to place for unfiltered live war updates for both Ukrainian refugees and increasingly isolated Russians alike. So, but it's also, I mean, Telegram is also where you will find a lot of, um, you know, Russian, um, like pro-Russian accounts where there's all these videos are being posted, which are, which have been removed from Twitter, right? Right, right. Hello? You still there? Can't yeah, hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, okay. You're very, very am I, low. Am I very okay. low or something? Yeah, you are very low. Okay, it's better now. Okay. But um, anyway, do you want me to keep going or should I stop? Oh, yeah, no, keep going. Keep, like, I, wanted, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to get all the way through the article. Okay. Meanwhile, Ukraine's government has been able to tap a whole new source of funding, raising more than $70 million worth of cryptocurrency from individuals around the world after appealing on social media for donations. And the Tesla billionaire Elon Musk activated his SpaceX company's satellite broadband service in Ukraine to provide high-speed internet over after a Ukrainian official tweeted at him for help from Russian efforts to disconnect Ukraine from the world. Commercial U.S.-based satellite companies like Maxar Technologies, which, by the way, is a defense contra um, contractor for the United States Department of Defense, have enabled anyone to view from space hundreds of desperate people lining up for food outside a supermarket in Mariupol, even though the Russians have the town surrounded on the ground and have banned any journalists from entering. Then there are the cyber warriors who can jump into the fight from anywhere and have. CNBC reported that a popular Twitter account named Anonymous, which, by the way, I don't know if anybody knows the history of that account, right. but it's very shady, declared that the shadowy activist group was waging a cyber war against Russia. The account, which has more than 7.9 million followers, almost eight times as many as Russia's whole army, um, including 500,000 new anonymous followers since the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That account has claimed responsibility for disabling prominent Russian government news and corporate websites and leaking data from entities such as Roskomnadzor, the federal agency responsible for censoring Russian media. Such NGO super non-governmental super-empowered global players and platforms were not present in World War I or II. But just as so many pe more people can affect this war, so too can more be affected by it. Russia and Ukraine are key suppliers of wheat and fertilizer to the agricultural supply chains that now feed the world and that this war has disrupted. 
A war between those two countries in Europe has spiked the price of food for Brazilians, Indians, and Africans. No, it's not that. It's the sanctions. But all of these liberals just fail to mention that it's the sanctions imposed by the West that are causing these issues. And because Russia is one of the world's biggest exporters of natural gas, crude oil, and diesel fuel used by farmers in their tractors, the sanctions on, well, here, the sanctions on Russia's energy infrastructure are curbing its exports, um, causing gasoline pump prices to rise from Minneapolis to Mexico to Mumbai, and forcing farmers as far away as Argentina to ration their diesel-powered tractor usage or cut fossil fuel-rich fertilizer usage, jeopardizing Argentina's agriculture exports and adding further to soaring world food prices. There's another unexpected financial globalization angle on this war that you really need to keep your eye on. Putin saved up over $600 billion in gold, foreign government bonds, and foreign currency earned from all of Russia's energy and mineral exports precisely so he would have a cushion if he were sanctioned by the West. But Putin apparently forgot that in today's wired world, as a standard practice, his government has deposited most of it in the banks of Western countries in China. According to the Atlantic Council Geoeconomic Center, the top six nations where Russian central bank foreign currency assets are stowed by percentage are China, 17.7%, France, 15.6%, Japan, 12.8%, Germany, 12.2%, U.S., 8.5%, and Britain, 5.8%. Also, the Bank for International Settlements and the IMF have 6.4%. Each of these countries, except China, has now frozen the Russian reserves. It is holding, so around $330 billion is inaccessible to Putin, according to the Atlantic Council's tracker. But not only can the Russian state not touch those reserves to prop up its crumbling economy, there will be a huge global push to tap this money to pay reparations to build, to rebuild the Ukrainian homes, apartment buildings, roads, and government structures the Russian army destroyed in Putin's war of choice. Message to Putin, quote, thanks for banking with us. It will be legally difficult to seize your savings for reparations, but you'd better get your lawyers ready, end quote. This is fucking Thomas Friedman getting paid to write in the New York Times. He goes on, for all those reasons, all of those leaders around the world who have drifted towards some version of another Putin-inspired authoritarian capitalism or kleptocracy have to be worried, though they will not be easily dislodged no matter what happens in Russia. These regimes have become adept at using new surveillance technologies to control political opponents and information flows and to manipulate their politics and state financial resources to keep themselves ensconced in power. We are talking about Turkey, Myanmar, China, North Korea, Peru, Brazil, the Philippines, Hungary, and several Arab states. Putin was surely hoping that a second Trump term might transform America into a version of this kind of strongman kleptocracy. Oh, yes, that would, that, that's what would make America kleptocracy. It would be Trump before that and after that. Um, and tip the whole global balance his way. Then came this war. To be sure, Ukraine's democracy is frail in the government, and the country has had its own serious issues with oligarchs and corruption. Kiev's burning aspiration, though, was not to join NATO, but to join the European Union. And it was in the process of cleaning itself up to do just that. That's what really triggered this war. Putin was never going to let a Slavic Ukraine become a successful free market democracy in the EU, next door to his stagnating Slavic Russian kleptocracy. The contrast would have been intolerable for him, and that is why he is trying to erase Ukraine. But Putin, it turns out, had no clue what world he was living in, no clue about the frailties of his own system, no clue how much the whole free, democratic world could and would join the fight against him in Ukraine, and no clue, most of all, about how many people would be watching. And that's the end.
Okay, where do you want to start with that? Oh, oh my God. Okay, well, um, I find it really interesting how, I mean, he, he does go into like the wheat, you know, wheat exports and things like that. But for the most part, he still says that all of that gold is Putin's like personal property or something. Um, that's Russia's reserves. That's not Putin's property, right? So, um, like, I mean, we can talk about any of it. You, you tell me where you want to start. I, I think um, I think where like this entirely goes off the rail is in the opening paragraph. Like he starts out really early with it uh, by um, when he says, uh, "I'm beginning to wonder if this conflict isn't our first true world war, much more than one or two ever was." which I think of as World War Wired, virtually everyone on the planet can either observe fighting at a granular level, participate in some way, or be affected economically. Um, this is the difference between, like, the... I'm not exactly sure how to call it. Uh, it's like the sort of, like, presentist, and um, it's, it's a way of thinking that is not rooted on any past ever having existed, not rooted in any um, context... It's simply, I had a thought, this is what it is, so this is how we're talking about it. And there's there's nothing grounding it whatsoever. So when he says, for example, I think of as World War Wired, everyone on the planet can obs either observe the fighting at a granular level, participate in some way, or be affected economically. Okay, so observe the fighting at a granular level. Um, when the, uh, I mean, the, during the course of the war in Syria, uh, all kinds of videos were being released um, out to the West, uh, especially with people that were um, migrants and, and were trying to find uh, safe passage into uh, European areas. Uh, you you saw, for example, um, uh, people who were amassed at like the Polish border and had to break through in droves. Uh, we've seen uh, wars happen and in, in conflicts happen in Latin America uh, where, you know, there's uh, uh, people who are... Um, like being moved into Colombia uh, to engage in fighting against the uh, the, the Colombian government. Uh, sorry, Colombians that are moving in to fight against the uh, the Bolivian government. Like we saw that happen. Uh, we saw um, we saw soldiers and we saw police firing on people, like firing on crowds after uh, the coup. Um, we've seen fighting from various areas uh, throughout the African continent. So we've seen fighting in Mali. Uh, we've uh, that were uh, we've seen fighting in Mali, um, both from within the country and from like fighters and mercenaries come from outside of the country. We saw fighting in Libya, like we saw uh, bombing as it was happening in Libya. Uh, we saw uh, crowds of people chase down Muammar Gaddafi, um, absolutely like brutalize him and murder him in the street like a dog. So to say that uh, everyone on the planet can either observe the fighting at a granular level, well. What level of granularity are you are you seeing that this war is experiencing that hasn't been experienced before? Um, participate in some way or be affected economically. So by participating, I'm not sure exactly what you mean. I mean, there was people that were leaving the U.S. and Western countries uh, to fight alongside the YPG in, in Syria. Um, there were people that have uh, left Western countries to be trained along the ASL, alongside the ASL battalion. Uh, there are also people that have gone to fight for um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. I mean, people are able to participate, regardless of whether you consider it terrorism or whether you consider it 
fighting for freedom, the matter of the fact is people being affected economically. Well, you know, when there's a fuel depot that's blown up in Syria, um, when there's um, uh, when when uh, Libya fell, you know, uh, world commodity prices. So what I'm trying to say here is that everything that he has said, like every claim that he has just made here is absolutely untrue on its own face. And that's where the article began. And that's why I say, if I had handed this into an editor, I would get it back with a bunch of question marks because they would say, well, what do you mean by all that? And then to go on and say that uh, it's gone, it's turned into the big battle between the two most dominant political systems in the world today, free market rule of law democracy versus authoritarian kleptocracy. So yeah. this idea that that you have like the civilized, orderly, democratic, logical thinking countries, and then on the other side of it, you have the dictatorial, authoritarian, totalitarian, oligarch-ruled kleptocracies. To create that kind of a binary is to say that we don't experience problems with authoritarianism and kleptocracy on our end, and then on their end, they don't experience uh, any sort of democratic processes or ex are expected to follow rules and laws, and that there are no such things as free markets such as they are on the other side. So to, to create this binary makes no sense because you can find elements of both on either side. And the, the, the most egregious part was that Anders Aslan, a, a lot of people know him as the guy who's been making incredible, like increasingly hyperbolic and unhinged, but he's also, like, he, he's uh, a fellow with the American Enterprise Institute and the reason for that was because he was one of the um, he was one of like the the you know the original like 1970s 1980s free marketeer one of the people that uh, believed heavily in shock therapy that uh, when you engage in like the overthrow of countries that are predisposed towards socialism and communism you automatically increase their freedom. And not only was he um, a thorn in the side of European economists, he's also been a thorn in the side of every global South country for as long as he's been a public figure. And when uh, the Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991, guess who was a principal advisor to Boris Yeltsin? Anders Asland. So how on earth can you say that there's a um, battle, a big battle happening between free market rule of law democracy and authoritarian kleptocracy when you laid the foundations of what you call an authoritarian kleptocracy. How, how do you have the fucking nerve? What is the difference anyway? What, what's the difference? I mean, well, free market democracy, free market capitalism, this is a fucking fantasy. It always devolves into... Well, that's the other you know, thing. There's what no, they there's call no explanation. It. There's no further explanation on what any of that means. They're just words. Again, yeah, they're they're words yeah. without meaning. It's they're just we're good and they're bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're all simple, like empty categories. So there's nothing there for you to chew on or understand besides oh, uh, rule of law, democracy, authoritarian, authoritarian kleptocracy, and there's no examination or exploration. Anders Aslan's role in uh, in, in the post, uh, in, in the aftermath of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, it's just simply, uh, it's just simply accepted on its face that this is somebody's word is to be accepted uh, without question. 
when he says also that, um, and I'll, I'll get to some of his like his most annoying ticks in a bit, but he does this strange thing, <coughs> excuse me, with Vladimir Putin, which you see happen a lot, but I haven't seen anybody do it quite like Thomas Friedman. So he'll say um, that autocratic leaders like China's are watching Russia carefully. You can see it, they see its economy being weakened by Western sanctions. Thousands of its young technologists fleeing to escape a government denying them access. Uh, the leaders have to be asking themselves, holy cow, am I that vulnerable? Am I presiding over a similar house of cards everywhere? So it's like, on the one hand, you position Russia as this, like, this decadent, uh, crumbling, uh, oligarch-ruled, authoritarian um, kleptocracy. And, you know, it's presiding over, like, a, a rapid decline that is alarming its regional partners and other people and other countries just like it. And then later in the article, he'll say things like, there's another unexpected financial globalization angle on this war you have to keep your eye on. Putin saved up over $600 billion in gold, foreign government bonds and foreign currency earned all, earned all from all of Russia's energy and mineral exports, precisely so he would have a cushion if he were sanctioned by the West. Okay. So it's like, Russia is able to develop this authoritarianism that it's able to clamp down on internet and freedom and prevent its people from having access to various facets of democratic life um, because they want to maintain control, so maintain control on their citizenship, on the body politic. So it's like they they are this this uh, this Eastern big bad uh, that's able to just like uh, exert <clears throat> exert <clears throat> excuse me exert a certain amount of force on its people that in many ways for a country of that size is at least for as long as it's been doing so according to people like Thomas Reed unprecedented but um, at the same time it's simultaneously crumbling that people are leaving the country voluntarily mind you people are leaving the country uh, technological smarts are flowing out of the country so it's like alright so they're smart enough to exert that level of control over their own citizenry but yet not smart enough to prevent people like the most valuable assets, especially in a war that you claim is the first real world war, an information war or a wired war, the priesthood responsible for um, keeping the flow of information in Russian hands, they're achieving rapid egress out of the country because they're sick and tired of being clamped down on. So on the one hand, they're smart enough to establish this authoritarianism, but also not smart enough to maintain control over it because its most valuable assets are leaving. <laughs> he does this again in this paragraph. Right. Putin saves up over $600 billion in gold, foreign bonds, uh, government bonds, and foreign currency. Um, but he says, Putin apparently forgot that in today's wired world, as a standard practice, his government had deposited most of it in the banks of Western countries and China. So you mean to tell me that having foreseen the possibility of um, sanctions that could not only cripple the country, but uh, loosen his hold on power, Vladimir Putin manages to amass $600 billion in gold, foreign government bonds, and foreign. But he's also simultaneously stupid enough to place these assets in uh, deposit institutions where it can be denied to him anyway. So it's, he's smart enough to try and avoid the sanctions, but dumb enough to be sanctioned then like none of this makes any sense yeah he's a cartoon villain <laughs> it does like how do you how do you write an article like this where like i've seen this happen where uh, a, a columnist or a pundit or analyst 
will at the same time uh, describe a foreign power or the leader of a foreign state as being too strong and yet not strong enough, being very weak. Also, okay, look at this. I mean, just look at the fucking numbers. I've never seen it done in the same paragraph. That is unprecedented to me. I've never seen someone do that in the same paragraph. Just look at these numbers, okay? So he says, um, Putin saved up over $600 billion in gold, foreign governments, bonds, and foreign currencies, okay? Then in the next paragraph, he says, the Atlantic Council told him that um, the top six nations where they're stored are China, France, Japan, Germany, U.S., and Britain. And uh, China has 17.7% of that, and all these others, 15.6, 12.6, it's like 28, 29, 30. Uh, 34, 35, maybe 46, maybe like 60% of it is um, held by the, at least, and, and then the IMF has another 6.4. So about 65 to 70% is held in these other countries, these Western countries, um, and then 17.7% in China. But then in the next paragraph, he says that 330 billion is, inaccess- is inaccessible to Putin. Like the numbers don't add up. Because that would only be like, like, that would mean that he still has access to like 45%. You know what I mean? Like, it's like mathematically incorrect, too. Like, where is there's a discrepancy there. And it's like, it's right there in his own text. Like, he didn't even fucking think like nobody proofread this, you know? So I I just, it's, it's difficult to get through stuff like this, because it's like, how, how does somebody with such, and he has the educational credentials to that he should know how to make these or make some argument of remotely approximating it that doesn't sound so stupid. But I've never, like, I don't know that there's columnist, author, speaker, thinker out there where there is as wide a gap between his ability and his prestige and um, remuneration, like how much he gets paid. I've never seen such a wide gap between and his actual ability. It's never been wider than Thomas. And so, but, but I think I just wanted to use this to illustrate a point which is that this is the way, like, this is the type of thing um, in the West, right? I mean, I, I want to say the United States, but it's not just the U.S. The U.K. is, they're like the U.S. times uh, to the power of 10. And the reason I say that is... Yeah, like, if any country makes the U.S. look less bad, I... Yeah, the U.K. <laughs> yeah, is it's, just it's Britain, fucking so. awful. And I, I, I don't know how much of it has to do with, like, the importance of debate and being part of like I don't know, like the uh, the educational ethos of the UK, but like there's something about their culture of debate where it's like if you can make something sound like it makes sense, if you can make something sound smart to score a rhetorical point on your opponent, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, or even if you think about it whether it actually makes sense. It's just a matter of whether people accept it to be true on its face. Like I think they're the absolute masters of this. <clears throat> the U.S. I think there's at least some tethering to like the the grounded principles of materialism somewhat, and I think it's well. The U.S. I think the difference is that I think the U.S. has a pretense of trying to do good in the world. Yeah. We know it's bullshit, but at least they pretend. The British don't even pretend. They never really pretended. They're like, no, we just want our, you know, we just we 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 are better than everybody else, and we deserve to rule the world. Like, yeah. they just don't, they don't even pretend. So, like, I think that is one of the core issues, but they're obviously, it's, it's much more complicated than that. But I feel like that, you know, the British and the class system, the ruling class and the sort of the capitalist 
hegemony is just taken as a given and they're not even pretending that they're like in any way um you know uh what do you call it um um you know no uh iconoclastic which the americans have this illusion that they're we're different we're better you know we're trying to we're trying to be better you know we are we are democratic we're we're uh we want to save humanity and we are, you know all of that bullshit that they say which they still use for the same purposes the british don't even have that pretense and and to me that's like core like they just have accepted that yeah we're the british empire and we deserve it and that's that and right. you can just all shut up and serve us so yeah. uh I, I wanted to i wanted to use that as a way to uh, springboard into a conversation and by the way like anybody can uh feel free to oh shoot i was just gonna take john's call john i'm not sure like if you like dropped down voluntarily or you accidentally got dropped i mean please feel free to come right right run on back up because but um yeah everybody come on up come on up to talk to us yeah especially because we're keeping it to 90 minutes if you have like stuff that you're marinating on and you think oh i'm gonna i'm gonna hop into it later in the call well, the problem is, or later in the show, we may not get to you. Like, it's better to come up sooner than, uh, and we can have this conversation. So, the difference between that and um, the way that we would think of, say, dialectical materialism, <clears throat> is that there's a method, there's a scientific method that Marxists use to analyze politics, to analyze culture, to analyze pretty much everything around us, right? So, the the whole purpose of dialectical materialism is to have a look at the state of things and the contradictions within. So how, how is it that a, a <clears throat> how is it that a change quantitatively can uh, qualitatively? And since the world, we, as we know, it is in a constant state of change. What is it that is causing those changes? And are those changes arising out of? That is, are there some things that simply, due to their very nature, the change cannot be avoided? And it's up to us to deal with the change as it arises, <clears throat> or are there interests at stake that are driving that change? That is, does a person, people, certain actors acting in, at the very least, their own self-interest, are they driving a change for a particular reason? And that is something that I think that uh, a lot of Western thought easily skips over, because when you ask somebody like a Thomas Friedman, but you could also ask the same of like, a, I don't know, like a Jonathan Chait or uh, I forget that other dude. But anyway, um, like you, you can you can ask any pundit, any columnist, a lot of analysts about what Putin's motives are. And they'll tell you that he's a madman. And regardless of how, how you feel about Vladimir Putin, the fact of the matter is there is still a rational self-interest that he's engaged in. Not just now, not, let's say, back in 2004, not during the early to mid-2000s when uh, he was not uh, president of, uh, of Russia or the Russian Federation, but the prime minister, um, and was uh, mostly keeping an eye on internal affairs. Uh, not in the early 2000s when he attempted to join NATO. I mean, there's, there's no point during the public life of Vladimir Putin that you can actually point to and say, oh, this is just a madman. There's no reason for any who, who, who the hell knows why. Because he's not a stupid person. Like, you don't mean, first of all, you don't maintain control on power for that long. Being, And then second of all, it's not as if the entire Russian state apparatus is beholden to him simply because he's Vladimir Putin. 
obviously there are other people that are acting in their own rational self-interest by uh, assisting, or at least at the very at the very least, not working against him remaining in power. So then the question is, what are those interests? And when you have somebody like Friedman writing articles on foreign policy, you would he would almost have you believe that there are no interests, that everything happens because it happens, or it happens because uh, a single person wills it to exist. And why is there anything about your motives that you should know? Are there anything about their motives that you can impart onto them based on past actions? No, everything just exists as it exists, and there's no reason for its existence. It's just there, and you should accept that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, like, you know what, the Gaddafi, they used to do this thing where he's like, oh, he has these female personal bodyguards. Oh, everywhere he goes, he puts these tents out, and, and he just, like, uh, has needs his own space to, like, put out his, you know, he used to, like, have these big tents that he would uh, put put out whenever he go, went somewhere. And so uh, they would take these, like, quirks and mock him, you know? And with Putin, they do this stuff where they're like, oh, he goes fishing. You know, look at him with his shirt off fishing at a lake. How hilarious is that? Look at that guy just fishing. It's like, motherfucker, everybody, like, how many of your people go fishing? Like, why Why is that? Why is that fucking? I mean, first of all, like, right. you know, it, it's just used as a way to further distance, alienate, dehumanize, um, and mock these people who are supposed to be cartoon villains. And the U.S. and Western media engages in this all year round. They're ready. They're like, they've been preparing people to hate Putin for years, you know? And, and, and so... They, that is why people just get activated because these little messages, these some these subliminal and sometimes not that subliminal messages, are in every piece of media, every story, every movie, every TV show. That it's gonna have something anti-communist. I am willing, you know. There's like that Bechdel test where like you can see if like a movie passes it or not. Yeah, yeah. And there's other versions of that. There should be something like that about anti-communism because I swear to God, every single Western media has something or another that's anti-communist. Like, I've almost now made it a mission. Maybe I'll start something. Maybe I'll start a website just to track those things because I'm noticing it everywhere now. Like, they'll just have a throwaway line in there. Like, oh, what is this Stalinist time? Oh, what is, oh, you know, they'll say something like, I mean, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll use mostly, like, references to Soviet Union because that is, like, the sort of stable enemy that the U.S. has had and the West has had for, you know, like, decades and decades. But, you know, they do have these these sort of these uh, mechanisms built into these cultural products, which Westerners consume. I mean, I do. And I'm one of the people who doesn't do as much as other people do. A lot of people are constantly watching, you know, shows and TV shows and, and, and playing video games. And, and, and all of these messages, these political anti-communist and xenophobic and imperialist messages are embedded in all of these programs. And so, yeah, it's, um, I mean, uh, I was just going to say that, like, they, they use that to make Putin and others, whoever they need, turn, you know, seem like this crazy madman who just cannot be understood, who doesn't have any rational impulses or rational reasons for anything. He's just doing it because he's just this megalomaniac who, like, sits in the dark and, like, laughs, you know, like, like, it's just weird. Yeah. So, um, I was going to ask you, um, so... Probably the the a way to look at this um, from an angle that sort of that criticizes Friedman's point of view without having to go into okay so let's learn some more about Vladimir Putin. Uh, I'm I'm sure you've been keeping up with uh, developments in Pakistan and that uh, you know there's the possibility that uh, 
Prime Minister Imran Khan be cooed, or at the very least, that uh, regime change will be enacted in, in such a way that uh, he, you know he'll be thrown out of office, and then somebody else uh, who's a little bit more U.S. friendly replaced. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess, um, like, would you be able to give us uh, a bit of a background on Imran Khan, and also what what is it that what is it that is motivating him right now? Because uh, as far as his relationships with China and Russia, he's been criticized for strong, stronger, or at least strong, uh, with China and Russia. Um, he's been criticized. Uh, he's been criticized for uh, the uh, social safety reforms in the country. Um, can you what social safety reforms? A, a, pardon me. Sorry, what social safety reforms? That that uh, he yeah he was he was. Uh, uh, I forget what the name of the, the policy was, but there were uh, policies to, to strengthen like social welfare uh, that he was criticized uh-huh. for in the Economist. I remember to go. Yeah, I was going to ask who criticized him. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and, that makes uh, sense. I, I yeah. wanted to get a sense from you of like who he is, what are his motives, and is this just say another autocrat trying to hold, like maintain a tenuous grasp on power, or who is he? Well, um, definitely would not listen to the economists <laughs> on uh, any on anything. I mean, maybe read them to get their perspective, but definitely not uh, not uh, correct and accurate or fair um, uh, analyses in those uh, in that particular magazine, which Lenin also criticized heavily in, in his time. Um, so Imran Khan is. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm originally from Pakistan. If anybody doesn't know, I was born and grew up there for my first uh, part of my life. And I speak the language and uh, and all that. So um, like the main, the, the national language, which is Urdu. And I do uh, have been watching um, the some of the commentary and news around what's going on. My, I have family there. Um, so I have a connection there. My um my mom is not there, but she definitely keeps up with the news and we talk about it. So um, Imran Khan is um, the pr- current prime minister. Um, I guess he's, he's now the interim prime minister. But what's happened in the last few... I mean, he's... Okay, so he was a very famous, very popular cricket player. And cricket to Pakistan is like... Uh, I don't think people in the West and maybe in Britain, but otherwise people only understand what cricket means to people in the South Asian countries like India and Pakistan. It is like it is like if you combine the popularity of base, uh, basketball, baseball and American football or whatever or soccer and you kind of rolled it all into one and that kind of fervor that happens. I mean, that is what cricket is. I mean, everybody plays cricket there, especially the younger kids and the boys. Uh, and the girls too, um, and you know, like from every street, everybody like poor people play it in the streets, and then uh, you know it's all the way up, and there's national teams, and they're very proud of it, and every it's a huge national thing. I I don't really care about sports that much, but I'm just telling you. So he was a very popular cricket player. He was like the captain of the team during like he took the Pakistani cricket team from like being like never winning anything to winning the World Cup. And he was extremely popular. He was also very attractive when he was young. Like, he was hot, okay? Um, so, I mean, we're talking, like, 19, I think, late 70s and early 80s, maybe? So, uh, but anyway, so he was very popular, very good-looking. Um, and uh, he was, like, a rock star cricket player. And so he he married, eventually, this um, British woman, a white woman, Jemima Goldsmith, or she 
she changed her name to Jemima Khan. She had a, he had a couple of kids with her. He made a lot of money with his cricket stuff and endorsements and sponsorships and all that. You know, just a big, big fucking sports celebrity. And then, like, um, that they divorced after a while or whatever. And um, but they're on good terms. And then he kind of like had this like sort of. He used to, I think, live in England, if I'm not mistaken. Like he studied out there. Like he's very well, like educated. I think. Yeah, he went to like Oxford or whatever. I'm just looking it up now. Okay, so he he's he's very well versed in like Western culture. Um. So at some point, I don't know the whole thing. Like I haven't like read his whole biography, but um, or, I, mean, I don't even know. I'm sure there's something out there. But basically, he had this like sort of um moment where he decided, or he he came to some kind of like sense that he's he wants to get back in touch with his roots um he kind of found religion again he kind of uh, found some kind of patriotism for pakistan or at least this is what you know he says so he and and at some point he basically got tired of all the partying and being wealthy and whatever and he decided to come back to pakistan and get into politics now in pakistan now he's from uh the northern province which borders afghanistan so he is ethnically uh, I think he's ethnically Pashtun, which is uh, the ethnicity that's shared by many people in Afghanistan, right? So there's like, the, when the British cut those uh, borders, they didn't really give a shit about ethnic, uh, as they didn't in any other place in the world. So they, the uh, the ethnic Pashtun people are divided between Pakistan and Afghanistan. So he's from a Pashtun background, and um, which is in the north part of Pakistan. It's called, the province is called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Uh, KP for short. So he started getting involved in the politics there, and that was during like the uh, war on terror. And he basically opposed the Pakistani governments, the various ones at the time that were the government of Pakistan, the national governments were, were colluding with the United States and with Western countries to uh, in this war on terror business, right? For the last 20 years. And that meant they were basically drone bombing all these places, killing civilians. I think like 80,000. Pakistani civilians were killed. Um, and so a lot of that happened in the province where he was. Okay. So he started, he, he started gaining popularity because he was opposed to the drones. He was opposed to colluding with the West, with the U S he was opposed to all of that. So he started getting very popular with the people and that's how he, you know, gained uh, popularity. That's, that was part of his rise, but also his fame and popular, you know, being a cricket player and all that. So um, anyway, so he is not, my point is that he he eventually became prime minister in 2018 um, and, uh, you know, elected prime minister. And so he, and since then he has a kind of, uh, he's been sort of this like personality. He's not an autocrat. He's, he's more, he, he has a sort of a personality where uh, his position is that he genuinely cares about the people. And he doesn't need money. He can't be corrupted because he already is like a multimillionaire. Like he doesn't need the money. He can't be bribed, which is the thing with Pakistan. I don't know if you know. I'm sure other countries have a similar have a similar problem. But literally, everybody in the Pakistan ruling class, in, in the Pakistan government, um, they have properties in um, the the Middle East, the the Gulf, right? Uh, in Qatar and Oman and Bahrain, they have huge properties, or they have uh, properties in London and Paris. And they they store their money outside. They take their money outside of Pakistan. They uh, basically use Pakistan as a you know way to they, they work with these imperialists. They're comprador bourgeoisie. That's the term comprador bourgeoisie. And so that has been the main thrust of Pakistani rulers for like 50, 60 years. Like no matter which party comes in, who comes in, 
it's the same fucking story. And every Pakistani knows it. So, um, or working class Pakistani knows it. And uh, there's a lot of apathy there. So someone like Imran Khan, who came in kind of on a populist message, but not like, I mean, when I say that, people think, oh, like Donald Trump or whatever. And yeah, in a way, there are definitely similarities in terms of the messaging or the type of messaging where it's more about, you know, uh, we have to protect our sovereignty. We cannot, um, that these people who have been ruling us are corrupt. Um, that, that, you know, that kind of mentality definitely is there. And what happens is when, when you talk to Americans about that, they automatically think, oh, Donald Trump. But in a country that has been looted and destroyed by the U.S. for generations, for, since the beginning, since 1947 when Pakistan gained its independence, um, that looks very different. That's a, so what I would say is Imran Khan is, the, if you want to talk Marxist terms, he's a national bourgeoisie. He is a national, like a Pakistani national bourgeoisie. So he is part of that uh, segment of society, which has a, uh, you know, he's not a socialist, but he is more interested in national sovereignty for Pakistan, including economic sovereignty, um, but, and also political sovereignty. So uh, unlike the others, uh, many, most of the others uh, on his level, where he's at in government, who are comfortable bourgeoisie, who don't care, give a fuck about Pakistan sovereignty, who only want to um, amass as much wealth for their personal selves and their families. And that is a fact. So um, like that is actually factual. There's num they're all in the Panama Papers and newspapers, you know, all of the Pakistani rulers, like for generations, like this is generational, like actual kleptocracy. Um, so he comes in and he does a few things. So, for example, he using some of his own money. Uh, he builds like hospitals for the poor. He built this huge ca cancer hospital for completely free for the poor, uh, for people who cannot afford health care. Um, and because his mother died of cancer, so he named it after her. Um, and so he kind of has this sort of, uh, you know, I, he reminds me of the way that Gaddafi was, at least in the earlier years, where, you know, he, he had a lot of wealth and he kind of wanted to sort of be more of a savior for his people, you know, instead of looking at it like as, a, as I would, you know, a Marxist or a socialist. Imran Khan is not a Marxist, I'm nothing, you know, but he has this sense that he wants to do some good for the country. And so he has tried his, his I think, what he could from within that perspective. Uh, now, of course, what happens is that just like with Gaddafi, you know, I think over time, when you are in that position, things change. So you end up automatically. I mean, I'm sorry, reality is kind of communist. You know, if you if you really care about the people, you will get pulled in that direction. So, uh, so for example, when the COVID-19 thing started, Imran Khan, his party, uh, PTI, um, they, they started, uh, he started this uh, scheme called SAS, which is basically like Medicaid. So not just for cancer patients, but for any kind of healthcare, um, there was a huge amount of, um, like, there was a huge relief for a lot of poor people in Pakistan who have never had healthcare. Um, so he, he, he started that and that's probably the one that, you know, one of the things that you heard him being criticized for in the economist, because Pakistan has lived under structural adjustment programs, which are, um, basically the U S, um, controlled IMF, International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Um, they give out loans to poor countries, uh, in, and supposedly that those loans are there to help those countries pay off previous loans. And uh, so this is this ongoing circle, like cycle of violence that's been going on. And those loans come with conditions 
um, and the aid, so-called aid that U.S. and other countries send come with conditions. And those conditions include things like you will not enact national health care. You will not enact certain uh, environmental protections. You will not allow uh, for labor unions to thrive. You will not allow for uh, more funding for public education. So they ensure that these poor countries, including Pakistan, remain poor, remain illiterate, remain without health. You know, their people are without health care and things like that. So we are kept poor. And that is so so that then the large multinational corporations can come in and loot us and take our resources and and employ um, the people for the cheapest amount of money. So um, anyway, so that is the deal with Paxton now doing these things. And he's also uh, strengthening some environmental uh, protection in Pakistan, which was never there before. Uh, and he's also worked on some other like um, helping some um, 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 uh, just. Uh, 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 some of the in initiatives in healthcare has been really have been really good, and I have to look up some of the other stuff because there's a lot there's a lot of misinformation online too. Um, but the most recently, the thing that changed that's been changing a lot is in the last like I don't know maybe because he's been there now for four years, so it's really quite it's happening quite fast. The CPAC, which is the China Pakistan Economic Corridor, was signed um, I think before he even came into office, but since he's been there. Um, he has worked with China more. He has, you know, um, uh, Pakistan received vaccines from China. Pakistan has received a lot of um, aid from China. And there's been a lot of efforts by um, certain forces to derail all of that, to sabotage that. Um, and so there have been attacks on Chinese uh, engineers, Chinese structures that have been built, like for power generation, power generate, uh, power plants and stuff like that. Um, and so there, there's a pushback and now what's happening now, but, but somehow it didn't take like they, basically the West could not foment a popular uprising against all of this. So um, now what's happening is now the West has basically engineered a parliamentary coup where, you know, all of these fucking most of these uh, politicians, including many in his own party, because it is just a, you know, sort of a centrist party. It's, it's sort of a liberal sort of, you know, economically liberal, socially kind of centrist party. It's not really, it, it, like I said, there's no, there's nothing socialist or Marxist about any of it. Um, so what, but they, what they've done that even that is too far left-wing or progressive for the West. Okay. So um, now they have basically, um, and, and Imran Khan showed this letter, this memo that was, not memo, these uh, minutes from a meeting that was held, that was held between Donald Lu, L-U, Donald Lu, who is a, a an operative of the United States Department of State. So this is all on record. You can look it up. Uh, Donald Liu even gave a video, test, a video um, uh, whatever, there was some kind of con congressional hearing, and he was talking about how they are trying to pressure Pakistan and um, India and uh, Singapore or uh, Sri Lanka to uh, comply with the sanctions against Russia and that they're not having luck yet. <laughs> So Pakistan has, um, since the Russian uh, intervention in Ukraine started, Pakistan refused to take a side. They tried to be neutral. Imran Khan actually went and visited with Putin the day after the uh, intervention started. And he secured a whole bunch of deals with Russia on uh, wheat and, I think, uh, gas. Um, so now America's pissed. America, Pakistan has always been America's little pony. Um, and uh, like I said before, most of the politicians in Pakistan have continued to do whatever the fuck, you know, Uncle Sam wanted. 
And now it's just not as easy. And so they're having a hard time controlling Imran Khan. And I do, you know, now I personally, I don't, I don't, uh, uh, um, I don't agree with his uh, political like uh, sort of position in terms of him just being a so, sort of a liberal social democrat type. Um, but, but uh, at this point in time, he represents the only thing that is uh, um, standing between the U.S. creating more CIA bases in Pakistan, uh, derailing the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, like uh, making things worse. Uh, pa- Imran Khan has even worked with India on some issues, which is huge for Pakistan. Like Pakistan and India almost define themselves by their hatred for each other on a on a government level. Like it's part of their national identities. Um, so and and you know their arguments. Okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and hash that out. But I'm just saying that it's it is huge for those two countries to even consider like talking to each other. Um, so Imran Khan even praised India recently for saying for he said that India has always had an independent foreign policy and that Pakistan should have something like that. So, you know, what I'm saying is that he's doing things that like nobody else has done in a long time, possibly ever in Pakistan's history. And the U.S. is getting very upset about it. And, and they don't like that. They're, that Pakistan is working closer and closer with China. Pakistan is a key, key uh, part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And um, Pakistan and China also have a very long history of uh, good, friendly relations. Um, so all of that is very much not what the U.S. wants. Um, so what the U.S. wants is more of a return to the 1980s, um, a project where Pakistan was used, um, 70s and 80s, was used against um, India, you know, and it was used against Afghanistan, and it was used against Bangladesh. So, like, they, the U.S. wants... Pakistan to be its puppet again. And there are enough, uh, you know, um, comfort of bourgeoisie and, and, and sort of, you know, the, some of the really corrupt people who run the who run Pakistan, who are willing to go along with it, who have done it in the past and were willing to do it again. I mean, they have assassinated many, many leaders, including, um, Benazir Bhutto, her father, even the dictator who worked with the U.S. eventually was somehow mysteriously killed in a plane accident, the Al Um, anyway, so, I went on for a long time, but the point is that Imran Khan's life is in danger. Okay. His, and he has talked about it. There's been many death threats. Um, and he recently talked about it. I posted about it on Twitter and he was, uh, so they tried to do a no confidence vote on him. What he did is that he knew it was coming and he, uh, basically put a re- uh, request to the, uh, like as prime minister, he basically, um, called for an election before they could so they so that he's not um uh like their no confidence vote didn't go through so now there's some kind of um measure going on in the supreme court and he has basically said that these people his the opposing parties are colluding with a foreign government in a conspiracy against his government and he has some evidence to that effect including all this video footage like i just said with donald Liu. so uh, the case is probably going to go to the supreme court of pakistan where um, they will decide if he should be like forcibly removed or if there should there should be an election. But most likely, most people, even his opponents, are saying there will probably be an election um, within three months. So then we will see. So that's where we're at. Right. So in that, like, I got a sense of you know who he is, what his motives are, what is the broader context of political development, um, what other what is. Uh, and why 
why now? Like, why would there be two wards uh, deposing him? And why would it be necessary to dissolve parliament? So, I mean, if you like, if you had taken all that and responded to, let's say, uh, I mean, there's been like multiple articles that were out today um, talking about, uh, you know, why it is that uh, Khan suddenly finds himself in trouble uh, and what he can do to, uh, to bail himself out. Um, there's an article in the Times of India talking about uh, uh, his opposition conspiring because of their U.S. ops. Uh, there's the BBC that talks about uh, Khan's fate, quote-unquote, hanging in the... And uh, while the Times of India is... Uh, at least that article was egregious in itself. Like, the BBC was... I couldn't even tell you how bad this is. Um, you know, it says that he was elected in 18 on a platform of tackling corruption and fixing the economy. Um, what was the purpose of it? We don't know. Why... Why? What was the, what was the, uh, the state of the Pakistani economy and what was the state of um, good order and business there, we don't know. Not, nothing nothing is – so anything about, for example, um, the necessity for uh, um, getting off of the uh, the, the – it wasn't exactly a blacklist, but it was like, you know, there was those flags on uh, the Financial Action Task Force. So being able to get off of the ships, uh, what exactly was the agenda, What is what would be required to get out of there, well, we don't know. And I, and I get that it's a relatively short article, but not even a, a passing comment about it. Um, nothing about the, uh, the amount of violence that was taking place against uh, Muslims and the fact that uh, a uh, Pakistani prime minister that is willing to work with India, knowing that that is the backdrop, means something. Mm, don't worry about it. We don't. So unfortunately, I mean, that's, that's just this of foreign policy news and the way that Western inform their readers is that we... We have this already always existing conception of any country that we deem a non-democratic state or is not one of our regional partners. You know, they're always they're viewed as uh, just being by nature dysfunctional. And in some ways, I would say even U.S. partners are deemed dysfunctional as well. But it's like the kind of dysfunctional that we can actually get along with. You know, the kind of dysfunctional that protects our interests. So you'll you'll see, for example, Israel referred to as like these. Um, and that's obviously like a slap in the face to U.S. partners in the area, but because it is regarded as a state that is uh, Eurocentric, i.e. white, uh, that they hold what the U.S. believes, congressional racist, APAC conferences, and so on, that uh, where it comes to any of these um, any of these countries that are deemed developed, uh, deemed to be democratic, etc., that's the kind of treatment that they get, and there's always nuance to be afforded. But whenever it's any other country, they are simply basket cases, and this is how they always are. Occasionally, you get lucky and, and find a, a leader um, that's willing to uh, either develop or enforce some means of transparency and democracy. All right, uh, Jason, we'll go ahead and take your call. What's up, buddy? Oh, okay. Let me call again. All right, Jason, go ahead. Unmute yourself. <laughs> Not sure exactly. Okay, it's the, the microphone button in the lower right-hand corner. Tap that button. Hmm. It's the, uh, the call-in queue. Can you hear me now? Yeah, now we can hear you. I'm not sure what yeah. you're Okay. Yeah. yeah, sorry about that. It was just weird. Um, I was actually, it was a very interesting talk. Uh, thanks, Kirin. There's so much to learn about Pakistan. I mean, and how important they have been in that sort of central, I, I don't know, role there between the Middle East and, and South Asia. 
But I, I, I feel that some of these sort of broader developments, when you speak about, uh, um, uh, you were speaking about Russia and, um, you know, Putin at some point wanting to join NATO. I think that there were very sort of similar threads when you look at how China and, and several other countries wanted a, a bigger say in um, the World Trade Organization. And because there was sort of a feeling that there wasn't actually sort of democracy wasn't being upheld, that they sort of started breaking away and then forming BRICS there. Uh, the, the BRICS countries, and I mean, we see that sort of breakaway from the Western systems happening maybe, you know, almost 10, 10 years ago. And uh, I just wondered what you, your thoughts were on those sort of um, through lines. I, I assume that question. Sorry. Um, so about like, you mean like uh, the way that Russia wanted to join NATO and China wanted to be more involved in like the global sort of yes, hegemonic. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I wondered if you also sort of saw that as a, I mean, as a, a period, you know, maybe a decade ago where, a decade or more ago where Asia and, you know, uh, other dominant sort of uh, world powers wanted to sort of have that one big happy family with the West, but obviously the West being unwilling to share power in any substantial way you know i mean do, do you think that these are all symptoms of that that same sort of the, those same decisions that, that 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 were made back then that's a good question thank you yeah um well i think definitely if you were uh you know watching all of these things develop for the last decade or or even going back further yeah there was i think a sense that um uh, you know the united states and its allies, let's say, um, you know, the Western liberal um, free market capitalist world, uh, United States, Britain, Canada, and all of those European countries that were willing to go along with it, they were, they have this triumphalist triumphalism, right? So they felt that they won. The Soviet Union fell, disintegrated, and then they went in and looted the shit out of Russia and other East, former Soviet Union countries, right? That, so the 90s, for example, were this, like, absolute you know, party for the West. And they just, they just partied. Like they went out and they got, you know, it was a big frat party. So um, I think coming out of that, you know, out of those years, a lot of, they, they just had this sense that like they were on top of the world and that was it. And so a lot of these countries like Pakistan, I think um, originally Putin and, and when, you know, as he was coming up the ranks, um, uh, his his uh, at least his government. I don't know about all of Russia. I can't speak for all of Russia, but I know that there were definitely elements in uh, in Putin, well, in Putin himself and others, as well as many people in Pakistan. Many, I think, many uh, of the some of the uh, people who were running China at the time too. I know that there's, for example, Jiang Zemin, who was I think one of the uh, he was I think uh, China's uh, president in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, so there was this sense that we can just get get along and okay, well, you guys won and we will just be here doing our little thing and, you know, and, and there was like Pakistan, for example, you know, it was this idea that we want to integrate, we want to merge with the West, we want to become part of this triumphalist, you know, Western civilization. Um, and I, I don't want to say that's true of every place. Okay, and I don't want to say that's true of everybody, even in those countries. 
but overall there was this sense that we would be allowed in the winners club now you know so um and i think that that illusion was quickly broken right after 9/11 which happened in 2001 and uh at least for those of us in muslim countries that illusion was gone um with pretty shortly thereafter because right after that all of a sudden the entire muslim world was held capable uh, culpable and uh, you know how many muslim countries were attacked either directly or indirectly or somehow got pulled into this war on terror stuff uh so the united states attacked and occupied iraq afghanistan and then eventually also went after other countries like you know libya and all of those places um and then the other thing is that if you were in palestine or if you were in a lot of the countries you know that was never an illusion that maybe you had okay so i don't I, again i don't want to say that it's true for everyone but there was definitely sort of this middle class um you know intelligentsia in global south countries that felt that we were now going to be allowed to just you know be part of this sort of club and it's it, it was an illusion and the reason i say that is because they were never going to be allowed in and as soon as um Well as soon as the 9/11 attack happened they went after the west US especially went after all these countries and then pretty shortly um and in the beginning actually China and Russia both went along and Pakistan went along with the US they were working with the US um in these efforts right in the war on terror and uh there was no competition that the US had against themselves um and it was really after the um destruction of Libya in 2011 that i think really russia and china especially started to change their trajectory um and i think it was they saw what the west was able to do and what the west did to libya for really no good reason <laughs> um anyway so just because libya wanted to have a more independent currency and work with the you know create a more of a uh pan uh, pan pan arab and pan african sort of unity um so there was this that, that posed a threat And so I think that that shifted and there were other issues there were other material changes that happened um I think that you know we have now entered we are and for the, I I think we've been moving away from that um so I don't think anybody now I mean I think that maybe some people might still think that that's something of an achievable goal but I think more and more every day it is not just not an achievable goal that we all can be part of the winners club of the west but the idea of the west being a winners club itself is no longer I think um it's it's not as easy to 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 i don't think as many people buy it i'm sure there still are because there's still i mean you know we have to remember that there's still like lots of people in the world who are part of this comfortable bourgeoisie right who are working for and who still have a lot of money and a lot of comfort in life and um and and for them they don't want the system to change right they want to they want to preserve that sense that they've had for all this time so i mean i think that they're going to try to hold on to it but i think that overall uh the masses of the world and you know uh, most people I mean there's in Pakistan they're having um actual like they're having uh protests that are where, where they're chanting like anti-american slogans and these are not just like um I mean these are like some like some like uh, middle class people coming up to these pro- protests so it's not just the very poor working class people who are doing that which they have been doing that for all this time but like nobody listens to them but this is now like the sort of middle class you know Imran Khan's voter base that are doing that so that is a real shift and and i think that uh you know it's reflective um of i think what's happening in other countries too 
Hugh? Oh, yeah, no. I, I, <laughs> Did that answer your question, Jason? Yeah, thank you. All right, and now in regards to, I mean, it doesn't have to be on the matter of uh, Pakistan. It could be on literally anything, like any anything in regards to the way that uh, the West reports and comments on news versus the way that would be much more helpful to think about news. I mean, feel free to uh, drop by with any comments, especially if you can think of any examples or anything that was written or reported or saw on television, for example. Um, and if we, you know, if we, if we don't have people uh, that want to hop up and uh, join the queue to have a chat about this, I mean, we can always wrap up. Yeah, I think we should wrap up soon anyway. Uh, just I have to I have a call at three o'clock. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I just want to say, you know, Q and I were thinking today we could just talk a little bit about dialectical dialectical materialism and, and and kind of looking at history and ongoing events with those lenses with that lens uh, because I mean a lot of people I know for me I'm still learning but I until very recently really did not know what that meant dialectical materialism I, I it's really in the last maybe two years that I've really I feel like okay I have a grasp of you mean you what it might Hegel be yet? <laughs> I have not read Hegel no <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Uh, you like, have? Oh my god. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, you you know me already. Right, Why? Right? Like I will I will read things that hurt me. Uh, so <laughs> if you if you want to understand the root of dialectical thinking, uh, Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit would probably be the place uh, the place to start. And, you know, there's a number of Marxist thinkers that have like gotten into um, uh, both like a and an expansion on goal. You know, Karl Marx was one. Um, Stalin actually has a uh, fairly uh, comprehensive um, analysis journalism as well. Marxist.org, or if you, you know, purchase a book of Stalin's writings. But I mean, this is not none of this is new. And I think one of the reasons um, that anti-communism is still virulent in the West is because it, like, by preventing you from thinking this way, you're then prevented from asking uncomfortable questions. And the fewer uncomfortable questions you ask, the easier it is to sell you on war, on conflict, on exploitation, etc. Because everything is always present, everything is always urgent, and the thing that we're supposed to care about now is the only thing that we've ever cared about. And then when we uh, find something else to care about, um, everything be, be before that is unimportant or completely non-existent. I mean, I think, of, for example, uh, that former Obama guy, uh, as he goes by on Twitter, uh, that uh, talked about the invasion during the Iraq war being less deadly than Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the uh, the qualification he adds is that, oh, I'm only talking about the, the invasion period, not the quote-unquote occupation period. And the question, obviously, is, well, what is, like, where would you even distinguish the two? Are you Are you saying that the invasion period stops when, uh, Bush lands on the aircraft carrier with the mission accomplished banner and gives a speech. Like, is that when the invasion quote unquote ends and everything after that, uh, how, how is this, how is this even possible? But because everything is described on its own terms as it's described, that is like, everything is just made up on the fly and we're supposed to accept that it prevents us from using already existing knowledge and drawing upon facts that we can confirm to arrive at an analysis. Uh, Rudy, yeah, you can go ahead and just unmute yourself. Or... Hey, how are you guys doing? Good, good. good thank you. Hey, so, um, yesterday I started, uh, I watched Bree Joy Gray's um, interview of uh, Rokana. Did you guys see it? No, I haven't gotten to watch it yet. I actually did oh, see, um, 
I saw like clips of it, and I saw I heard some of the uh, analysis she did with uh, Max Blumenthal. Right, and so if you guys just have like even two minutes, just click on any way you want, and it's just all bad takes like, by <laughs> um, Rome. Yeah. And Breeze just hammering every one of those bad takes. And just this guy is as ahistoric as anybody you've mentioned today. You know, it's he the, he uses words that absolutely mean nothing. He says that oh, you know, basically Russia's out here killing children and women and I mean it's Somebody else mentioned it, I think, maybe it was Q at some point, mentioned that it's weird how we just, men don't matter. You know, if you were born a male, as soon as you're no longer a child, you basically don't matter anymore. But he he goes on, oh, uh, women are being uh, killed, children are being killed, and as if this is just like this new thing that had never happened, and he's supposed to be a progressive, like, how do you... Uh, even. Yeah, I mean, he's a, you know, that's just a sort of women and children is a, is a, when somebody says that or, or I mean, there, it's, it's atrocity porn, you know, it is a way to, it's supposed to pull at our heartstrings because, yeah, because somehow men's deaths don't matter. I don't understand. Like, I mean, I have grown men that I care about very much and I do not want them to hurt, be hurt either. So, I, you know, but this idea that, oh, women and children, because women also are, can be fighters and can be in the military. So, you know, there can be women who are killed as part of their fights. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it is an old fucking, like, thing, you know, like, it's just an emotional way to, like, you know, you're supposed to shut up when somebody says, women and children are dying. You no longer are supposed to say anything. Otherwise, you are, like, a psychopath, like Satan, Hitler, you know? And and that is the point. Exactly. Shut people up. Yeah. And there are implications to these things, you know, but I suppose he feels okay saying such things because nowhere else is anybody going to uh, make the connection. Okay, so uh, women are and children are holy. How come we're bombing women and children in um, in Iraq? And how come you're not talking about it as this red holy line, like you're basically making it with um, Ukraine? You can't go from, we can bomb marriages, even how, how crazy is it that we bomb, uh, you know, um, a funeral like that that's crazy <laughs> i mean there's a lot of crazy stuff but people are going to a funeral and we bombed a funeral i guess women and children just don't go to funerals you know right i don't know i mean uh but, they, they they bomb weddings yeah. they bomb schools they bomb school buses and by day i mean the u.s and u.s-led forces um they have bombed um uh they they uh cows in fallujah yeah Everybody, I recommend this. People go to Twitter and look up uh, the account called F Defects, F like Frank Defects, and um, it will show you the birth defects that babies are born with in Fallujah, where the United States used like a shit ton of white phosphorus uh, chemical weapons. Um, and to this day, and that was done like almost 10 years ago, and to this day, or maybe more, um, to this day, um, like one out of, I think 15% of children are born with extreme uh birth defects and many of them are born dead or die shortly after and and this account is is documenting some of them so when those those children don't matter their mothers don't matter you know like it's completely completely ridiculous yeah i think they i think we even like turned a big chunk of the middle east into what is con considered like a 
cancer region or something like that because yeah. of just the amount of toxic shit that we and i guess i guess women and children don't drink water over there women and children just yeah. like flint women and children in, in flint don't drink water yeah it's just manipulation they, now rokana <laughs> rokana you know i think at some point he said well i was against the iraq war but um i support this right. one you know but uh, there's a certain kind of liberal liberal left whatever progressive so called who basically uh, i i mean i call them nostalgic lefties because they basically are always against the wars from the past but they're always for the war mm-hmm. in the in the present they always have an excuse yep. for why we need to support this one even though all the other ones in the past we, we those were bad bad wrong those were mistakes yeah so it is, it's crazy how black and white these things are because the other thing they do also is Joe Biden is the worst person in the world but as soon as he inches outside of the territories of the United States let's forget you know the context that we're talking about yep this is just a miracle man again and it's with Trump too it was that Trump was a terrible person he's dangerous you can't trust anything he says but as soon as Trump goes to Venezuela and says that the Venezuelan president is no longer the Venezuelan oh then of course Trump is at that point a genius it's, it's mind boggling it it leaves me with this impression that drow just is not a person that's serious it's he's clearly he's a liar because you cannot tell me that rokana does not know who chris hedges is you cannot tell me that rokana believes that um you know chomsky just happened to not like being on tv anymore um that you know it's all these critics of american empire just don't do what rokana does because rokana's on tv all the time how come they don't do what rokana does i, I don't it's it's bewildering and i just don't understand how anybody can really even uh, bernie i've lost bernie 100% but ro ro just has it's either he's a complete he was born yesterday or this guy's just a big liar and the fact that we allow him to keep taking any credit by going on tv uh, on jimmy dore show on breeze just to get um you know to get beat up he likes that i don't know but that is no credit like yes he goes on tv to get beat up but people some people like that and the fact that we still say props to him for doing such thing for liking to get beat up i think that is not really helping us up uh, helping us out yeah i mean um he's probably getting paid a lot to go on there so I, i'm sure i'm pretty sure he's right. like i don't care he doesn't care what you know he doesn't have any self-respect or anything but yeah i mean he's a liar i don't think they're incompetent you know I, i mean in politics and in in these positions they don't you know you can't be just like a a bumbling idiot or something and then get into you know what i mean like there's a whole lot of work that needs to go into it even if they have teams part of it is performance they're they're performers they're actors uh but part of it is and also and he's so good at it. yeah he's but just, you do have to show up brown eyes Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's all a fucking game. Oh, he's lying to you. You look at him as he's lying to you. He's got this he does it with confidence. He gives you these big brown eyes. I I I look at him and he sucks me in and then I close my eyes and I'm like this guy's a liar, but every time you look at Ro, you would pretend but when I'm I'm you know as a kid I was really good at detecting who was a liar, but like now it's as an adult it's really difficult. And I think part of it is because we no longer call politicians liars, you know, in John Stewart used to call them liars, Colbert used to call them liars. And can I ask you guys a question? Who's the worst replacement? 
John Stewart's replacement, um, what's the South African dude's name? Or Colbert's replacement, Colbert. Colbert is so bad. Ugh. Oh, they both suck, yeah. And Trevor Noah sucks too. I mean, I used to watch Colbert in the bush years, worse. but it is such it is painful to watch Colbert now. Actually, I can't. I can't even do it. <laughs> he drank in Obama. Yeah. This guy drank in Obama. Oh. Did you see that when he drank him in? Mm, you mean the, during the Obama years? Yeah, he had an he had an interview with Obama where he just mm-hmm. said, "Hey, let me just freeze this moment so I can drink you in." It was like the it was a it's crazy. If you can imagine the person that Colbert would be making fun of in two thousand seven, it was it's Colbert at that point. He says Bar- he Barack, is the person. Yeah. Yeah. Let me drink you in. He's become like a semi liberal Bill O'Reilly, which is what he used to parody. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, he might be worse. He might be worse than Bill O'Reilly. I've yeah. never felt so much for Bill O'Reilly, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so I appreciate you guys, um, you know, what you're doing. I get depressed. I, I don't even know where to begin speaking about these things because, like, everywhere you look, it's just, com- it's, we're doing damage control everywhere. It's the best we got is AOC, who's completely quiet when we're talking about, oh, there could be a potential World War Three. Elon Omar, she lives in my state of Minnesota, and I swear that 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 that, that lady, you don't see her. She's the best that we have. But again, there's a bunch of Somalis here. The United States drops bombs on Somalia all the time. The United States was trying to strangle uh, Ethiopia for a minute. Elon Omar is nowhere to be heard. The Somali community is here. I mean, there's a bunch of Africans here of all the Nigerians, you know, of course, they're everywhere. But there's no organization. You would imagine that the lady whose country is being bombed would, you know, organize these people. And she knows she knows how to do this stuff. It's not about voting. The whole, oh, yeah, voted against the Iraq war. That's bullshit. The voting doesn't matter. It's do you come out into the streets and then do you talk to people and try to actually, like, you know, get... The people, because that's the only thing that's going to get us out of this mess is people on the ground protesting. Even that is like a moonshot. But to vote and, to, you know, it's completely bullshit. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll let Gio go, but I appreciate you guys hear me out and express my frustrations. Anytime. And uh, that's probably where we should wrap things up. I just want to say thanks to everybody who dropped by. Uh, I want to say Karen. Um, 62 people. What the hell happened? Yeah, I know. We grow, uh, we grow like more and more every week. Um, I just, uh, sorry, I just want to say thanks, Rudy. Um, I was going to suggest to Rudy that, uh, you know, it's all about class, Rudy. Uh, immigrants can be just as, um, jingoistic and stuff, you know, in fact, sometimes more because they have to like prove that they're bet they're good immigrants, you know, they're model minorities and all that. So, uh, it really comes down to class, and I highly recommend that you follow me on Twitter. Um, and I can recommend to you some good books that might make you feel less depressed. All right, I'll stop. <laughs> no worries. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make note that uh, we now have our Patreon up. Uh, so to support not only this show, that is the uh, the Culture Colin show, uh, but on top of that, the uh, the Culture live stream, which is on uh, Google and Odyssey, and the Canuckcast, which is on the same forms on Wednesdays, to the Substack that will be in a couple of weeks. Uh, and on top of that, uh, the uh, the video essays and podcasts, the new Frankfurt School 
uh, and uh, the Negro Subversive podcast. If you want to support all of these things, you can do that for as little as $5 a month with all of this content that we offer you. So uh, if you go to patreon.com forward slash theculture.tv, uh, patreon.com forward slash theculture.tv, uh, you can support us for as much as you're able. And if you're not able to support us, we really appreciate you sharing the uh, the. Any uh, final thoughts, Kieran, before we go? No, I just want to say thank you to everybody who came in. And, um, yeah, please do check out the uh, Patreon for culture. Um, and I'm actually going to also be starting restarting my uh, podcast show. It's not going to be a podcast. So um, follow me. And um, there's a new, new, new show that I'll be starting as well called Red Life Planet. But um, it's still under development. Um, and I'm probably about uh, maybe two weeks away or so from, from launching that. So, uh, you know, stay in touch. Looking forward to it. All right. I'll see you again Thursday. All right. See you, Q. See everybody. Bye.